Hey, it's Rick Brown filling in for Rob here at Vintage McCoy, and we are diving into some Bible prophecy with our second part in our series of The Road to Armageddon. You see, in the book of Revelation, we see that there's these future events that are going to come. And in these uncertain times over this last year of the pandemic and everything else that's happened and the control of uh, tyrannical leaders upon a population, it really awakens the reality of future events that are going to take place in the geopolitical world, in the natural catastrophes, or I should say supernatural catastrophes that are going to take place. And there are the seven seal judgments in the book of Revelation. There's the seven trumpet judgments. And recently, when I was speaking at a church, they were doing a through the Bible reading. They were in the book of Revelation. And the congregation's reading goes with the pastor's preaching. So in the center of that was Revelation 16. And it is quite famous, Armageddon. What's it mean? What's it about? And we're going to look at that as we now pick up in our part two series of the road to Armageddon. And we look at um, how all of this unfolds. There are seven bowls of judgment. And uh, I don't want to rehearse too much, so just go back and watch the last edition if you want to see what brings us up to the doorstep of our part two. But we looked at the first three bold judgments that are going to happen on planet Earth. We also looked at Jesus said, this is such a great time of tribulation that it's nothing like the world has ever seen. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved on planet Earth because it's going to be an incredible, uh, unprecedented, um, supernatural judgment of God. Well, we pick right up where we left off, which is the fourth bowl, which has to do with the temperature, your temperature at that time. I don't believe that us Christians are going to be here. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. At the end of this segment, I'm going to share with you why. And as we look at this, in the first three bold judgments, we looked at terrible sores that are on, painful sores that are on the people that take the mark of the beast, which is a mark so that you can buy and sell and trade and do those things. And then we looked at the uh, entire ocean turning to blood in the second bold judgment. And then the third was uh, the rivers and springs of water, the fresh water supply was turned to blood as well. But now amp up the temperature. And all of these things seem to happen with such close succession together because otherwise there would be very little survival. If you do all the math through the book of Revelation of the judgments and the population being reduced through the harsh judgment that is happening, um, that's about half of the world's population. Right now we're bumping up uh, 7.75, seven and three quarters of a billion people on planet Earth for uh, the census around the world. Let's just call it an even eight. We'll be there before long. And that would be four billion people being devastated uh, through the judgments and then about four billion coming out the other end. Well, having said all that, we pick it up with now a temperature spike, unlike what we've recently been experiencing here in Southern California. But look at this in verse 8 and 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. So this angel pours out bowl, this bowl of wrath on the sun, 
and the sun changes these extreme solar flares or, you know, I don't want to try to explain it. It's supernatural. An angel is producing it. Uh, the sun now is scorching men with fire. Verse 9 says, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Now, this judgment does not produce repentance. As a matter of fact, they blaspheme God's name, and they will not repent, nor will they give him glory, but they know specifically where the judgment is coming from. Now, in our normal heat here in the United States of America, uh, just this uh, last week, we broke a record. And out in Death Valley, the record was uh, 134 degrees from 1913. And then back in 2017, it was 130 degrees. And then just two weeks ago, it was 128 degrees out here in Death Valley. So those are the three hottest days recorded in American history. And I mean, that's pretty toasty, right? 130 degrees, let's just round it off and call it that. Now, as a kid, I lived in Phoenix for three and a half years, and it would get 112, 115, 116. I mean, it is smoking hot. And I can't imagine another 15 to 20 degrees being added to that and you know, surviving out in Death Valley. But this heat that is scorching men with fire from the sun is nothing like this world has ever seen. So imagine the sun is bringing this kind of heat and fire and exposure. You're, you're running for cover. You're trying to, uh, I, I don't think there's any sunscreen that's gonna slow this down. You need a fire suit. And the fifth bowl, it affects the light. Now, on one hand, here's this extreme experience with the sun scorching men. And then how this happens, I don't know. In verse 10, it says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast on his kingdom, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Remember the pain of the sores back in the, seven, the first bowl judgment. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So the darkness that comes on the beast, the, he's a political leader at that time, and everybody that's in his kingdom, just like the sores came on those who had received his mark, so everybody comes into deep darkness. Now, there was a darkness and a judgment that fell for three days, and it's actually described with a, a physical component back in Exodus chapter 10 when Moses was telling Pharaoh to let his people go. And um, it was this darkness that could be felt. Look at it in Exodus 10 on the uh, ninth plague of the ten plagues. Darkness, which may even be felt. There was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. So this darkness just kept people in their beds wherever they were. Three days, it was such a pitch black darkness, a darkness that could be felt, felt an eerie, awful darkness. And that passage goes on to say, we don't have the slide, but, but the children of Israel in the land of Goshen, they had light. God, through the plagues, was making a distinction for the people that they would have light, God's people, that is. And yet this darkness, wow, think of it. 
intense heat, scorching men burn. I mean, if you have an intense sunburn, I don't know if you've ever had that terrible experience of falling asleep out in the sun and just not being able to walk for two or three days afterwards, being so fried. And um, then it goes into this darkness, so there's all this pain and this gnawing their tongues of those who are in darkness, so the pain. It always seems like pain is the worst at night, doesn't it? Somehow the nighttime is when it's the most awful, and they are gnawing their tongues in pain. Those who, they rejected God, they're blaspheming God, they don't repent, they don't get right with God, because they've already taken the mark of the beast. They're all in. tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that because they would not receive the love of the truth, God gave them strong delusion to believe the lie. You see, when you reject the truth of who Jesus is, about what he came to do, to die on the cross for your sins, to rise from the dead so that you would have forgiveness of sins and you would conquer death and have everlasting life. When you reject that truth, you truly will follow anything, believe anything, go after anything because you see, once you've rejected the truth, there's only a strong delusion out here to lead you down a path that leads to judgment. It's tragic. It's the human experience, but everybody has the opportunity as you're walking with the Lord or you're exposed to the Lord, the spirit that has come to draw you to Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. And maybe even as we're going through this series of these two messages of the road to Armageddon, that you sense the knock upon your heart to get right with the Lord, to turn or to rededicate your life to the Lord Jesus. These are things that are going to happen in the future, but a person that is right with the Lord, you don't have to be afraid of anything that's going to come. Now, the sixth bowl is the peace is removed from the earth because we now have arrived at Armageddon. It tells us in verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the kings, the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So the kings of the east, as we look at some, uh, you know, let's, let's look at this next couple of verses here and, and see this unfold for the verses, and then we'll go to the, the pictures. In verse 13, it says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, when this unfolds and this takes place, the preparation that, that takes place, let's skip to verse 16, if you will, Micah, and I want to share this word, Armageddon, what it really means. In verse 16, it says, they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Ar Armageddon or Har Megiddo, and that is a declaration of a mount of Megiddo, a mount. Now, that whole area is this incredible Jezreel Valley. And it's, it's one of the, uh, as we look at that, the, uh, the uh, slide of the map here. Um, this is Megiddo right here. And so Megiddo is this 
tell or an old ruins that it's been torn down and rebuilt 32 times according to archaeologists. But you see this incredible plain here and the only mount there, there is no mountain, mountain of Megiddo for Harm Megiddo. And so some believe this little mount, which would be very little, uh, or this this area or this region, because you see the battles that have been fought here. There's some 200 recorded battles that have taken place there. And this is going to be uh, an epic time, an epic battle that comes, because you see the deadliest battles of world history. As we see in World War II, there was a battle that took place, and 1.58 million people were killed. And also in World War I, 1916, there was 1.6 million casualties at that battle. And then in recorded history, the Mongol sacking of Baghdad that took place in 1258, 2 million people uh, were killed from January 29th to February 10th. Now, these are the deadliest battles that have ever taken place. Now, it tells us that the Euphrates River, notice this map, that starts up in Turkey, the river comes, the drainage, the watershed of the Armenian mountains, and it begins up there in Turkey, it comes all the way through Syria, and then through the full length of Iraq. And this is a, a, a natural barrier to all of the nations to the east, which is to the right, and Here's this little bit in your far left. The, the biggest uh, uh, word you can see to this far left is Turkey or Saudi Arabia, which is down below. But here's Israel. They're on the Mediterranean, this tiny little piece of ground. And this natural barrier to all the kings of the east. So everything to the right of the Mediterranean is east. You have uh, Iraq, you have Iran, you have Afghanistan, you have Pakistan, you have India, you have China, you have Kazakhstan, you have Mongolia, you have uh, all everything that's to the east, everything that's to the right. Now, most of the time, you'll hear people say, this is China coming with this incredible, now it tells us earlier in the book of Revelation, that there is an army of two hundred million. Now this area of the dense population, the greatest population of the earth right now, China, the largest nation in the, the world, 1.4 billion, and uh, India, who's right behind them at 1.2 billion, I think, or 1.1 billion at this time. All of these people that uh, are there as far as a massive populations. It's no big deal during this time because we saw that the demonic effect, that the spirit that comes out of uh, the dragon, the beast, the, the antichrist, the false prophet, these are the, the evil trinity, if you will. The devil empowers the political leader. We know him as the antichrist or the man of sin. And then he has a false prophet, a guy that's doing signs and wonders. He's his trickster. And he uh, brings about this great deception. And these three spirits, these demonic spirits, go out and whisper into the ears of all of these political leaders, of all of their cabinets, of all of uh, their um, animosity towards the people of Israel. And we see anti-Semitism on the rise again. And we see also the greatest superpower in the world on the rise 
with extreme aggression in the world right now, it's the nation of China. And China, whether it's through their technology, it's through their massive military buildup, they have yet, you know, uh, the president has asked a task force to evaluate the Joint Chiefs, the, our military people, to evaluate the threat of China. Because we went through the Cold War years and our eye was on Russia. And now the, uh, all eyes of, of the world are on China because of what they want to accomplish. In their rhetoric, in their training, their one goal is to overwhelm America. And technology, overwhelm America through uh, uh, commercial endeavors or financially, and also militarily. They have an agenda. And so this all lines up with them and whoever else there in the East, which is a lot, and there's a lot of, a lot of Muslim en enemies, it doesn't seem like it takes much cohesion for people to hate Israel when the devil whispers in their ear, because Israel has been the focus because of God's special promises to his covenant people for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all their descendants, and what God's going to do during this time of great tribulation is a great revival among the Jewish people. This is the 70th week that Daniel chapter 9 talks about. We don't have time to go into that right now, but it unpacks everything that's going to happen. There's going to be an incredible revival during this seven-year period of time among the Jewish people. There's going to be 144,000 mean, lean preaching machines, and these Jewish preachers are going to be preaching about their Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, having said all that, this battle is epic. The river Euphrates dries up. The spiritual uh, deception goes out and rounds up all these leaders, brings a huge army, and now they can cross the Euphrates River, a natural barrier that is now dried up. The Euphrates River, in, in certain spots, is huge. It's uh, 300, in narrow spots, it's 300 yards wide, and in wide spots, it's like 1,200 yards wide. And that's not feet, that's yards. So it's a massive uh, barrier. And so now that all of that's taken place and they gather for that great battle, and you see it unfold, uh, in uh, the judgment that comes in Revelation chapter 17, 18, 19. Now, when we look at this um, next bowl, this, the seventh bowl is really twofold, and it's about the safety of the people that are there. Now, we're going to back up because there's a verse that if you got your Bible open and you're going along with us, at the end of this, I'm going to go back to uh, a exhortation that is dropped in the middle of that about the Lord Jesus coming. But before we get there, I want to finish up on these bold judgments and then go back to that exhortation because I think it's appropriate for us as we wrap everything and tie a little bow on the end of this at the end of Revelation 16. But this seventh bowl has a great earthquake like has never been on planet Earth and then great hailstones like have never been on planet Earth. Check this out, verse 17 and 18, the great earthquake. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, it's done. The seventh bowl wraps up the judgment of God, even though 17 and 18 and 19 of Revelation is the mop-up operation and further details, if you will, more information. Verse 18, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Notice this. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. 
Now the great city was divided into three parts, that's Jerusalem, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of the wrath of God. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. This judgment that comes, look at some of these massive earthquakes. This is the biggest earthquake ever recorded in Chile in May 22, 1960. It was on the Richter scale, 9.5. This is horrendous in power. 6,000 people were dead because the epicenter was not near a populated area. Now, then we have, in Alaska... This was a 9.2 on the Richter scale, 154 people died. But I don't know if you can see the incredible topography that's been changed. I mean, there's cars down in this picture on your left, and there's about uh, 10, 12 feet of roadway above. And the one to the right, you just see how everything, I mean, the entire crust of the earth is buckled up and broken like a loaf of bread. This is the greatest tsunami of our time as far as uh, a death toll. And most of us are aware of this one in Sumatra in 2004. This earthquake was a, a 9.1 to 9.3. It's uh, triggered a 100-foot high tsunami and 239,210 people were killed in 14 different nations. This tsunami, they made a movie about it. It's incredible. That earthquake is like an earthquake that has never been on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, it changes the topography of the Earth. You go, come on, Rick. Do you really believe this stuff? I do believe this stuff. I believe that the flood took place in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. You see, everything that the Lord declared was going to happen in the past, has happened, and everything that's still yet future prophecy. That's why when we look at the book of Revelation and we look at, say, simply one chapter, and this may uh, give us the opportunity just because I've recently uh, dug into the book of Revelation. It's been a little while since I've taught it from chapter to chapter, which I have done a number of times in the last 30 years as a pastor. I love the book of Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel and these incredible prophecies. And uh, I'm inspired as I look at these things with the accuracy with which God declares something's going to happen. That's why when you look at the book of Revelation and those who believe that the, most of the things have already happened in history, you cannot read Revelation 16 and come up with that. And you have to be very creative when it comes to f uh, figurative, metaphorical speech. It doesn't really mean what it means. Well, I believe the literal declaration of Revelation 16 is the things that are going to happen in it are going to happen exactly like the Lord said. His track record is perfect. We have the more sure word of prophecy in the past to declare 100% accuracy for the future. Well, to wrap this part of the seven bowls up before we look at a word of encouragement, the great hailstones. Check this out. In verse 21, as if the earthquake that now has dropped mountains, islands now have disappeared, the topography of planet Earth 
is transformed from this point forward. In verse 21, it says, Great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Most believe Bible commentators, you'll, you'll hear as they try to wrap this up in some package of well, how much is a talent? It, it varies from 75 pounds to 125 pounds. We're just going to shoot for the middle of that. It's about 100 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. That seems almost like an understatement, doesn't it? Like, uh, it was exceedingly great. Now, the earthquake was great. I mean, and I don't mean in a good way. I mean in an intense way. And now these hailstones are like 100 pounds. So whatever the earthquake has not totally leveled, these incredible projectiles of 100 pounds apiece come down. Now, looking at history, I, I love these things. I mean, I, I nerd out on it. The largest hailstone in history is in uh, Coffee, uh, Kansas, I believe. And um, this happened back in 2018. And this is a replica of it there in the Coffeeville Museum. And, and for its size, and I think it's uh, 1.68 as far as its weight. But this one's epic because there's storm chasers there, and they had a police radar, and the police radar is clocking how fast these hailstones are falling. So you, all, you have this huge hailstone, and then they're clocking how fast they're going, and this hailstone was clocked at 105 miles an hour. Now, a really hard-pitching Major League Baseball pitcher it can throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. So... This is heavier because it's like 1.68 as far as its, its weight. And do you know how, I'm sure you just know off the top of your head, how heavy a hardball is? It's five to five and a quarter ounces. That's, that's the regulation for professional baseball. So this is three times the size, but hurtling to earth at 105 miles an hour. Check out this next one, because these ones are almost two pounds, but it's a whole field of them. This took place in Bangladesh, and 92 people were killed. This happened in, in 1986, and 92 people were killed. Imagine you're caught out with no cover whatsoever, and these two-pound hailstones hurtling to earth at 100 miles an hour are wiping people out. It kills almost 100 people. And those are only two pounders. Now, this one is the largest that has ever been discovered. And the gentleman that um, found this, Mr. Lee Scott, it was 10 to, 12, uh, 10 to 11 inches across. 10 to 11 inches across. Because when he found it, he couldn't get it to refrigeration or, or to a freezer immediately. So it melted considerable before he could get it into the freezer. All these are just fun little things as I nerd out on it. Look at the size of this thing. And that took place on July 23rd, 2010 and, uh, in uh, Vivian, South Dakota. So lots of hailstorms in America. Now, when I think of those hailstones... And I think of the size of them, and then I just think of my backpack. Usually in my backpack, I've got it packed with books and computer and everything else. I'd say it probably averages about 25 to 30 pounds when I have it really packed and I'm traveling. And imagine something this size, and this is only, say, at its heaviest, 30 pounds, but something that's 100 pounds 
hurtling through the sky at 100 miles an hour, decimating. This building would be nothing but a pile of dust if that was the case. Now, having said all of that, I need to back up. I believe we're back in verse 15 to look at an exhortation that is just dropped in the middle of all of these things as the Lord says that he's going to come quickly. Now, we pass by it, and um, he says this in verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. The preparation for those who, uh, uh, of us who are living in these last days, he said, hey, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to take you out of this experience of the Great Tribulation, as we'll see in a moment. We're not going to be here. But that thought that we would be caught naked has to do with no covering, like Adam and Eve that are caught naked in the garden. And they tried to cover their nakedness with uh, fig leaves, their own efforts, their own works. But the Lord ultimately had to sacrifice animals, and he gave them fur coats instead of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And that gives us a picture. It's the first sacrifice that is given within the scriptures to cover somebody's sin and to cover the physical nakedness that they had. But in the scriptures, to be caught naked means to be unclothed in righteousness. You see, right now we're naked in our sins, but when we receive Christ, we are clothed in his perfect sacrifice, his righteousness, his blood that was shed upon the cross for our sins. He took our place and our judgment was buried and rose from the dead. And so now we're clothed in righteousness. But for many of us, like Adam and Eve, that are hiding from God, we're clothed in our own justification, our own itchy fig leaves. Like, hey, you know, I think good people go to heaven, therefore I don't really believe in Jesus, but I'm going. I want you to know that only people that are going to heaven are not good people, but forgiven people that have received Jesus. Those are the only people that the Bible says are going to heaven. That's a very narrow way that people have a hard time with. Now, having had this exhortation, let me just ask you, are you ready? You don't have to fast and pray for 10 days to be ready. Let me just ask you, do you believe in Jesus with all your heart, that he's your Savior, and that he paid the price for your sins on the cross? If you believe that with a childlike faith, you're ready. You're ready when you wake up in the morning. You're ready when you go to sleep at night. You're ready at lunchtime. And so people ask me, they said, hey, you know, what do I have to do to get ready? Just trust in Jesus. Just walk with him each day. Now, if you're off living in a lifestyle of sin and you know Jesus, then I would want to get right with that. You know, I had a guy watching him and his girlfriend were watching me on Sunday mornings at a TV ministry for about 15 years. And they're watching me on a uh, Sunday morning and they're, um, <laughs> they're uh, doing meth. And they're doing meth on a Sunday morning watching a Bible program. Figure that, right? Go figure that. And they said, hey, if we ever stop doing meth, we're going to go to that church. Well, the story ends up they both end up getting saved and coming to Christ and coming to the church. And they went into ministry. And, and God just used that um, experience of them hearing a message like this, realizing that they needed Jesus and coming to Christ. And maybe that's you. Or maybe you're backslidden. You know Jesus. You just haven't been walking with him. I want you to know that exhortation is for you. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming as a thief, and I want you to be walking with me. I want you to be ready by just a childlike faith of believing in him and obedience. Now, having said all of that, we love Jesus. We've just looked at Revelation chapter 16. Are we going to be here? 
I don't believe we're going to be, as I said at the beginning of our first segment, I'm so pre-trib, I don't even eat post-toasties. But what about us? You see, there's these promises that God gives to us, his people, saying that we're not appointed to this wrath, the wrath that is coming to planet Earth. It says in 2 Thessalonians 5.9, or excuse me, I believe that's 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In this whole context, chapter 4, chapter 5, he's talking about the Lord coming again. In Revelation 3.10, he gave the church of Philadelphia that was faithful to him this promise. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice this promise is to those who are in Jesus' faithful church. That's us today if we're in his church. And he has given us this wonderful promise. Paul tells us this mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Paul says there's this mystery that we shall not all sleep. Now, isn't that a great promise in the sense that the New Testament uses the word sleep for death because it's a much gentler word than to die because, you know, you're not afraid to go to sleep when you're tired and weary. And so we're going to be with the Lord. But I want you to know, as a child of God, as a Christian, I am not afraid to die. But I must confess, as a human and as a man, I'm not very excited about the process by which I'm going to die. Is it going to be cancer? Is it going to be a car wreck? Is it going to be an aneurysm? Is it just going to be old, decrepit age and of natural causes? You know, I'm not very excited about the process, but I'm not afraid to die. But I get pretty excited when Paul the Apostle tells us that there is a generation that's not going to die. Did you know that? There's a generation that is not going to die. We are going to believe, as we believe in the Lord, that there's a generation that's alive and well, and we're going to be snatched out of here through the rapture of the church. Man, that's exciting. If I could escape the whole death thing, how about you? Now, when I say that, people say, Rick, you're such an escapist. My pre-wrath, uh, mid-trib, post-trib believers. They love Jesus. And I just want you to know, eschatology is not a divisive point for Christian fellowship. I have brothers and sisters in Jesus that have different eschatology than I do, but we love each other. They believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose from the dead. And I pray that you don't cut me off or somehow break fellowship with me because I hold this persuasion, persuasion of being uh, committed to the pre-tribulation rapture. I have a very good friend, another pastor, who is pre-wrath, and he told me, he said, well, Rick, you know, uh, I, I think you're wrong, and we would argue back and forth, and, and, I, and I, I just told him, I said, brother, if I am wrong, I am coming to your house for dinner because you got all the food and the ammo. And, you know, it's just, I'm not worried about that. I believe the promises of God that we're not going to be here. As a matter of fact, there are people that say, Rick, you're just an escapist and you're teaching your church to be an escapist. And I go, and your point is, you and I just walked through the seven bold judgments of Revelation 16. Who wants to be here? Who would not escape that if they could? Jesus actually told us to pray that we would be ready to escape. In Luke chapter 21, verse 36, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. 
Jesus said, when you see these end times, and that's what the context of Luke chapter 21 is end times. He said, when you see all this happening, pray that you might be counted worthy to escape. How are you worthy? Believe in Jesus. Be ready for him. He's coming as a thief at night. He's going to snatch us out. And Jesus said, so that we may escape all these things of judgment that are coming. Because he already described it in Luke 20, or Matthew 24, that it's the great tribulation, and it's a time like the world has never seen, and that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, it tells us about the elect or the saints. That's talking about God's work with his covenant people, Israel. Right now, mainly Gentiles are getting saved in this season of life. And then a few Jews. But in that season, the revival is going to be among the Jewish people and less Gentiles getting saved. So it's going to be reversed. Now, in Genesis 5, 24, we have a picture of this in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard this adage that the Old Testament is in the New Testament uh, revealed and the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. Meaning these concepts, typology and various things, we can see these pictures of what New Testament truth teaches us in a concealed way in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 5, Enoch is raptured out of the earth, and then chapter 6, Noah and his family are going to go through the flood. Look at this, Genesis 5, verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch, a man of faith, had his own, this was his claim to uh, fame, if you will, in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And he was walking with God and he was not, for God took him. He had a physical experience, a physical rapture, where God took him and translated him or brought him into heaven. Now, two people in the Bible that took place with. Elijah also was separated from his protege, Elisha, by a... Um, fiery chariot, and then he was taken up into a whirlwind. So two people in the Bible never died, Enoch and Elijah. So we have a precedent that God has done that in individuals' lives, but he's going to do it in a corporate way for the bride of Christ, the believers in Jesus. Now, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 13 and 16, it says, On the same day Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and their three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark, and the Lord shut him in. So then we have this picture of the Jewish people that went through a great judgment, and that was Noah and his family, and then they repopulated the earth after that. So we have the rapture, a picture in the Old Testament of Enoch being raptured and then a Jewish family going through a time of great judgment. That's what's going to be duplicated, the rapture of the church and a time of the 70th week of Daniel for the Jewish people. Now, I want to take you deeper than that into the actual concept of God's people of faith being rescued from the wrath and judgment of God. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this dialogue. Abraham is concerned because the Lord says he's going to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham's nephew Lot lives there. Now, Peter calls him righteous Lot. He was a man of faith. It seemed like his faith was somewhat compromised. His family really wasn't walking with God. But Abraham intercedes, but it's the concept that I think if you, if you don't wrap your head around this, you will not see the big picture from Genesis to Revelation of God's heart, because I think Abraham expresses it the best. 
It says here in Genesis 18, verse 23, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham's talking to God, and he's interceding for Lot over in Sodom and Gomorrah. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous. Notice this concept. And God is going to grant him his request. And so we see that God agrees with Abraham's perspective. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth, check this out, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place from for their sakes. Now, this concept is crucial because Abraham's a man of faith. He's the father of faith. And he's got a, lot, uh, a nephew, Lot, who is also of faith. He believes in the true and living God. And God says, I'm going to go over there, see the wickedness, and I'm going to bring judgment. But Abraham's mindset is, wait, wait a second. This concept of you judging Lot and his wife of people of faith alongside wicked people, far be it from you. That just makes no sense. Why would you, the judge of the earth, do? why wouldn't you do what's right? And that means, why don't you rescue Lot? Now, we know the story. If you understand the Bible and you're familiar with this passage, Abraham says, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy it? God says no. Abraham then goes down. Do I hear 40? Do I hear 30? Do I hear 20? And I think, I think Abraham, he stops at 10 for a reason. I think he thinks to himself, hey, the community of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's got to be at least 10 righteous people that believe in the true and living God. Surely there is. Now, there wasn't. There wasn't. And therefore, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, but Lot and his two daughters and his wife were taken by the hands from the, the angels and taken out. And this is what the angels of the Lord said that came to rescue them. They came to see the evil, and they came to rescue them, and they grabbed them by the hands and said, we cannot bring judgment to this place until you are gone. This is the same concept that we now take out to the end of the age where we're living right now. And when people tell me, Christians that love Jesus and God promised were not appointed to, the wrath, to wrath, that we are going to go through this time of great tribulation, I sincerely not only disbelieve that perspective, I do not believe Christians are going to go through this great tribulation for these reasons, for the promises of us being taken out in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we didn't have a chance to get to starting at verse 13 through 16 for the sake of time. And, but a bigger concept that God is not going to judge with his wrath those who believe in him by faith. He is going to rescue us. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed and transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and taken out in that seven years of great tribulation. We are going to be with the Lord enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb up in heaven while this world is being judged. Because shall not the God of the earth do right? Shall God destroy the righteous with the wicked from his wrath? The answer from the Lord to Abraham and also to Lot was no, he shall not do that. And 
Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and unfortunately that's a big mess that we don't even want to mention after that, but they got out of Dodge and the judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. The road to Armageddon, which is just one piece of the Mount of Megiddo in this incredible valley, the Jezreel Valley, where there's going to be a tremendous battle, but wrapped up around that one bowl is a fullness of seven bold judgments that are coming to planet Earth, and that's only one component or one series of things that's going to happen in the future. It begs the question, hey man, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Have you received Christ? Are you surrendered to Him? And Jesus said to a church that He had got pushed out the door, maybe you have a religious background, and He was knocking on the door in Revelation 3.20 and saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone that opens the door, I will come in and have dinner with him. I'll have fellowship with him. I'll have a relationship with you. And that's what Jesus longs for. Way before the, uh, we get to the end of the road of Armageddon, Jesus is calling to you. The Lord said to the Jewish people, All day long I have reached out my hands, stretched out my hands to a stiff-necked and rebellious people. You know, God just keeps knocking on the door of our hearts. You know, it's hard to get through 70 or 80 years here on planet Earth without hearing about the love of Jesus, that He loves you. He died for you on the cross for your sins, your guilt, and your shame, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to make you righteous in His sight, to conquer the power of sin and death, and to spend eternity with Him in heaven. That's why He came, that you would not be appointed to wrath, that you would not be in the crosshairs of the judgment of God that is coming to a God-rejecting world. Let me just ask you today as we close here, and we close in prayer, if you want to open your heart to the Lord Jesus or you want to rededicate your life to Him, just pray with me right now as we conclude this heavy message about a future judgment that is coming. And I promise you, just as sure as you and I are communicating with each other right now, this is coming to a neighborhood near you. I just pray that you are not there and I'm not there because we both know Jesus and we're going to take, be taken out before that. But to have that assurance, to know that even if you died today, way before that ever took place, that you would be with the Lord forever. To be absent from this body is to be present with Him. Pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me and you shed your blood for me and that you rose from the dead and conquered death. I put my faith in you, Jesus. I trust you. Become my Lord and my Savior that I might walk with you and see you face to face when I leave this world and enter in to your heaven. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've had a couple of hard-hitting sessions about eschatology, future events, but the bottom line is every day we get to enjoy until we see the Lord face-to-face. Jesus' love, He'll promise never to leave us or forsake us. Until next time, here at Vintage McCoy, I'm Pastor Rick Brown. God bless. Hey guys, thanks for watching. For more information, head over to VintageMcCoy.com or follow us on Instagram at The Vintage McCoy. We'll see you there.